We're carrying on through our series of Daniel, the Old Testament book of Daniel. And uh, today we've got up to chapter 8 in Daniel. So don't worry if you haven't got a Bible, the words will be on the screen. But if you have, you can find Daniel chapter 8. What you may have picked up, certainly from two weeks ago when Paul preached on chapter 7, is that Daniel is not in chronological order. That means event after event. Uh, Chapters 1 to 6 kind of go, this happened, then this happened, then this happened. It follows an order, time. But at the end of chapter 6, we have the Babylonians being overthrown by the Medes and the Persians. And now in chapter 7 and chapter 8, we've gone backwards. And Daniel is talking about visions that he's received during the time of the Babylonians. Have we got that? Uh, So I'm going to read, I'm not going to read all of Daniel 8 this morning. I'm going to read a good chunk of it and then I'm going to pray for us. So I'm going to read up to 1 to 16 and then the end, the final verse. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa in the province of Elam. In the vision, I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal and the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but it grew, but grew up later. I watched the ram as he charged towards the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against him, and no none could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between his eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. He came towards the two-horned ram, I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at him with great rage. I saw him attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering his two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against him. The goat was knocked to the ground and trampled on, and none could rescue the ram from his power. The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small, but grew in power to the south and to the east, and towards the beautiful land. It grew, it grew until it reached the hosts of heavens. And it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the prince of hosts. It took away the daily sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was brought low. Because of rebellion, the host of the saints and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It prospered in everything it did, and the truth and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard the holy, a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to him, How long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation and the surrender of the sanctuary and of the host that will be trampled underfoot. He said to me, It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. 
while I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man. And I heard a man's voice from the Ulai calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. And then it goes on and uh, Gabriel tells, the angel tells Daniel what the vision means. And uh, it finishes at verse 27. He says this, I, Daniel, was exhausted and lay ill for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage this morning, as we come to what you have for us this morning, Father, we say, come speak to us this morning by the Spirit. Come help us. Come strengthen us. Come lead us into your truth. Come magnify Jesus amongst us that we might delight in him this morning. Pray help me. Strengthen me as we look at this seemingly difficult passage that even Daniel said found hard to understand. Thank you that. Thank you for the privilege of living in the light of Christ. And through him we see truth because he is truth. Come be with us. Amen. Amen. Right. So this second half of Daniel, chapter 7 onwards, contains visions Daniel received. Did you know this? 45% of the verses in Daniel are predictions of the future. And this chapter is included in there, prediction of future events. See, there are some clever people who like to predict and forecast events. For instance, the weather. I'm always amazed by the forecast. Is anyone else? I watch it and I think, how do they do that? How do they know? They don't get it wrong. You can have it on your phone if you've got a phone that has the weather on, and it says, oh, about one o'clock it might start to rain. And often, at one o'clock, it starts to rain. I'm amazed by the forecast. I'm amazed how they predict it. I'm even more amazed that they can predict it for England, which is so unpredictable. I'm sure in many countries around the world, it's not hard. It's like, well, it's hot. It's going to be hot for the next three months but not in England. It's amazing. Or economics. There have been lots of people who have been, uh, who, who have said of them that they predicted many of the financial problems that we find ourselves in as a world and as a, as a nation uh, and lots of the financial problems in Europe. People saying, well, actually, we predicted it. And there's people that say, yes, they, they did. A few years before, they said this was going to happen. We can't go on 
borrowing and borrowing. We can't go on in the way we are. And people predicted that. Or sports. Many people are very good at predicting sporting results. Maybe you've... Ah, Lizzie, you've stolen my point. Just get on with your knitting. (laughs) Maybe you've heard of Paul the Octopus. Has anyone heard of Paul the Octopus? No? Paul the Octopus was um, around in the 2010 World Cup and uh, the Football World Cup. And this was an octopus that they used to, uh, in Germany, in a sea life centre in Germany, to predict the matches. They would put a little box of mussels with a, a, a flag on one side and a box of mussels on the other side with the other flag of the team. And they'd say, right, okay, whichever one the octopus chooses, that's who we think will win the results, win the game. He accurately, in the 2010 World Cup, accurately predicted all seven of Germany's games. He even predicted their defeat. When he predicted their defeat, some Germans said, we need to do away with Paul the Octopus. He should be eaten. (laughs) And uh, he went on to predict that Spain would win the World Cup. However, when we come to this passage in Daniel, Daniel isn't simply predicting one of two results. It's either going to go this way or that way. He's not just predicting a few days or even a few years of events. He's actually predicting events over the next 400 years beyond him. And he's not just looking at signs. He's not just using amazing good luck. Actually, Daniel tells us God gives him his vision. And I want to ask you a question this morning. And it's this. What do you allow to shape your vision of the future? What do you allow to shape your vision of the future? So let's have a look at his vision. And uh, I've got four points to do this, to look at his vision. And they're this. God is in charge of nations. God is in charge of evil. God's kingdom is eternal. And God calls us to respond. So firstly, God is in charge of nations. So Daniel has a vision. He sees himself. It says, in Susa, he sees himself in the the province of Elam and the citadel of Susa, a, a, a fortress, a palace. If you go to the Iranian town of Shush, you're going to have to help me here, guys, make sure I get this right. If you go to the Iranian town of Shush in southwestern Iran... Am I still on the right track? Okay, good. There are the ancient ruins of Susa. Yeah, okay. See, a lot of my information is off the internet, you know, so... (laughs) 
Susa became one of the capital cities of the Persian Empire. In fact, if you read the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is cupbearer to the king in Susa. Esther. Esther becomes queen in Susa. And then we read on that Daniel has a vision of a ram and a goat. And I've got a picture here to help you just to kind of visualise this, all you visual thinkers. Okay, there you go. Uh, The goat looks a little like a unicorn, um, but uh, he has a vision of a ram and a goat. Okay, we go back to the point, Sandra, thank you. And in the second half of this chapter, we get to understand what, what the vision means. Daniel encounters Gabriel, an angel, God's messenger. And uh, if you remember back to chapter 2, where um, there was this uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of this giant man with different parts of his body representing different empires, um, then there's some overlap here with some of these two animals. I'm not going to go in it now, but um, let's just look at these two animals. The first one is the two-horned ram. See, verse 20 tells us that the ram represents the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians with one one horn higher than the other. See, the Persians were the strongest partner um, in that partnership, in that kingdom. And uh, Persia uh, kind of grew out of what is now modern-day Iran. And it says the ram did as it pleased and became great. That's what the Persian Empire did. It could do as it pleased. It became very, very great. The second animal is the goat. The goat, we're told, represents Greece. The goat attacked the ram with great rage. It trampled on him. It was aggressive. It was powerful. It was violent. Has anyone watched that? There's a documentary at the moment on BBC Two about the Greek, about the Greek Empire. Has anyone watched that? One or two? Look, stop watching The Voice and things like that. What? <laughs> you can watch it this week. It's on the Greek Empire. And who was the great military leader of the Greek Empire? Yes, yes, Alexander. Alexander the Great, he led his armies in a similar way to this goat, sweeping through land after land, through the Balkans, into Asia, Syria, Egypt, Persia, into what's modern-day Afghanistan, into India. Daniel says in verse 8, the goat became very great. But at the height of its power the large horn of the goat was broken off. See, Alexander the Great achieved so much in his 20s, all that in his 20s, and then at the age of 32, unexpectedly died. And his empire was given to four of his generals. And, uh, you know, in verse 8, it talks about four prominent horns will rise. See, Daniel prophesied 
the rise of these two great empires with such accuracy. And it's, you know, it's interesting history as well, isn't it? But it reminds us this. It reminds us a very, very important theme of the book of Daniel. Nations may rise, but God is in charge. Empires can prosper, but God is in control. Psalm 22, verse uh, 28 says this, Dominion belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. Dominion just means who's in charge. The Lord is in charge. He rules over the nations. And this is what Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebuchadnezzar said in uh, uh, Daniel chapter 4. He says this about God. He does what he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Do you know, isn't it good when we look at the state of the world, when we look at the state of nations, when we look at power struggles, struggling nations, emerging nations, God's in charge. So the danger is to think, actually, God's ruled out of these things. He has no say. See, perhaps you're not from the UK, and you think, you look at your home nation, you think, what is going on? Has God given up on my home country? This isn't how it is meant to be. Do you know, politicians, armies, leaders might think they're in charge, but it's the Lord who reigns. The Bible says he's in charge. Hey, maybe you're from the UK. And you think the same. Has God given up on our country? No, he's in charge. No matter how much nations might try to choose to wipe away God, he remains ruler of the nations. Think of somewhere like China, a place for so many years that seemed place that would want to get rid of the name of Jesus. A place that seemed closed up. What's going on? Now, I remember growing up not knowing much about China. It seemed very closed. What was God doing in that nation? Actually, God. As big doors began to open, God is building his people. We see this amazing underground church of millions of believers in China. Pray for the UK. Pray for your nation. Perhaps there's nations God has put on your heart. Pray. Pray for them. See, to know that God is in charge of the nations shouldn't just result in us doing nothing. Actually, it should stir us to pray. I want to pray that Jesus' name is made known more and more in those nations. Secondly, God is in charge of evil. So we get to the second part of Daniel's vision. Another horn will grow from one of the four horns of the goat. This horn would start small, but grow in power. And then the interpretation of the vision gives us a little more detail about this horn. It says this in verse 23. A stern-faced king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He'll become very strong but not by his own power. 
He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the mighty men and the holy people. See, all scholars agree, and there's little doubt about this, that in this vision it's talking about a guy, a ruler, called Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, And uh, we've talked about him before. Did you talk about about a couple of weeks ago, Paul? I can't remember. Possibly. Maybe a little bit. Touching. We have, and we're likely to talk about him a bit more as well. See, from the four generals that inherited Alexander the Great's empire, the Greek empire, two became dominant. And then out of one of them, Antiochus Epiphanes, arose as king. And it was, so he was king of a smaller empire, and he ruled from about 175 BC. So it's about four, 400, 500 years um, from where Daniel is, is vision. And he advanced, as prophesied in verse 9, to the south, to the east, and to the beautiful land. What does he mean by the beautiful land? Israel. The place that God had given to his people. That's what Daniel sees in his vision. See, Antiochus Epiphanes hated Judaism with a passion. He hated the God of Israel. He wanted to destroy Judaism. He attempted to destroy all the copies of their Torah, the first five books of the Bible. He wanted to just rid the earth of it. And in the temple, he demanded offerings to Greek gods. And he put a statue of the Greek god Zeus in the temple. And he sacrificed a pig in the temple. Pigs of the Jews were unclean. This was an act of extreme insult. And eventually he was kicked out of Jerusalem and he died of disease. Interesting, Daniel says. Actually, he'd be removed, not by human power. It says that in verse 25. See, this is all interesting history, isn't it, as well? But actually, this, account, this part of the vision of Antiochus Epiphanes doesn't just remind us about him. Actually, it reminds us about evil in the world. So the people of God have an enemy. See, the Bible reminds us that you and I have an enemy. But it's not other humans. It's not other nations. Rather, it's demonic powers and a real devil. See, maybe you struggle with that. You know, we have lots of visitors here on a Sunday morning often, and maybe you're a new Christian. Hey, maybe you've been a Christian a long time and you struggle with it, and you think, do you know, no one believes in that anymore. A real devil? Demonic stuff? Actually, no no one talks about that anymore. Get real. Here are some friendly challenges to you as we just think about this. Maybe you say, actually, there's no spiritual dimension to evil. Actually, all we know about evil, it's, it's all social, it's all psychological factors. That's all evil is. Believing in evil, believing in a real devil, is far too simplistic. We're more knowledgeable now. Perhaps that's what you think. 
But let me challenge you. Perhaps the opposite is true. Perhaps replacing evil with simply a set of psychological, social factors is too simplistic. You know, all the problems in the world come down to misunderstanding and psychology. You know, I'm not saying they're not important. But perhaps to reduce evil to that is too simplistic. And not to recognise, hey, maybe there's spiritual depth. Maybe there's a spiritual dimension to the evil we see in the world. Maybe you say, no one believes that now. No one believes that now. Look around you. That's just not true. If you look around the world, Latin America, Asia, Africa, actually they have no problem with believing that there's a spiritual dimension to evil. Are you saying that just the Western, your Western culture, and I'm speaking particularly to Western people now, are you just saying your Western culture is right? No, I'm not saying that just because most of the world believes in evil powers, then it must be true. But what I'm saying is don't be blinkered. Don't be, uh, uh, don't be uh, tunnel-visioned by your culture. But the Bible also tells us that there's a real devil and real demonic powers. It also tells us that because the entire race has turned its back on God, it's allowed evil to enter its heart. Because what you could hear me say when I say God is in charge of evil, as a point, is you might hear me say this. God is responsible for evil then. God can be blamed for evil then. No, that's not what I'm saying. The human race, you and I, have made very real choices. We've chosen evil often. We've delighted in evil. But what we're reminded in this passage of Daniel is that evil, even the devil, even all his powers, are not out of God's ultimate control. The verdict on the devil and all his powers has been passed. He was defeated at the cross and he's on borrowed time. And one day, he'll be dealt with forever. His end has been determined by God. So it says this in verse 12, you may remember reading it. Daniel's vision says that the truth would be thrown to the ground by Antiochus Epiphanes. Do you know that's what the devil wants to do among Christians today? That's what the devil wants to do among you and I today. See, truth thrown to the ground. See, Jesus calls the devil the father of lies. He wants to reduce your confidence in his word. He wants you to reduce your confidence in Jesus as God. As Jesus, as one who came, lived a perfect life, died a perfect death, but was raised victoriously by God. He wants to reduce your confidence in that. He wants to see truth thrown to the ground because he wants our attention to be on anything other than Jesus. See, the Christian life is a battle. It's not just like a battle, it is a battle. Isn't it? Yeah. 
We have an enemy. Perhaps you're aware of this. Perhaps there's times in life when you are more aware of this than others. But know this. In the battles that you and I face, Jesus has had the victory. The enemy's fate has been determined by God. And you and I, we don't fight him with our human effort, with our human power, but with the power of Christ dwelling in us. Thirdly, God's kingdom is eternal. See, at the end of the vision, we get the explanation by the angel. Daniel says he was exhausted and lay ill for several days. What an honest response. What a human response in many ways. He was exhausted and he lay ill for several days. He'd been shown what was to come. The Persians would come. The Greeks would then conquer them. Then out of that, that Greek empire would arise uh, one who would persecute and attempt to destroy the people of God. So is that the same response for us too? You know, as we think of the future, are we left exhausted and feeling ill for several days? No. When Daniel looked to the future, he was initially sick. When we look at the future, we have a great hope. Why? Why do I say that? Because an angel that came to Daniel says, Gabriel came to interpret his vision. Some 600 years later, Gabriel would come to a young teenage Jewish girl called Mary and tell her that she'd give birth to a son, that she should call Jesus, and he would grow into a king, and his kingdom would never, ever end. So as we look at the future, we see Jesus is advancing his kingdom. We've been brought into his kingdom. That's what Colossians says, Colossians 1. It says, we've been brought into the kingdom of the son he loves. It's an everlasting kingdom. See, for anyone who puts their life in Jesus' hand, there is hope. Hope in the Bible isn't like we think of hope. We often think of hope as cross our fingers and let's just hope it happens. No, actually, hope in the Bible is certain, it is sure. Hey, perhaps you're not a Christian here today. You can know that hope. It's a hope that needs to be personally received. How can it be personally received? You know, it's not. You can receive this hope by coming to church more. You can receive this hope by doing more good things. You can receive this hope by making sure you read the Bible every day. It can't be earned. It's received. You're not receiving a set of beliefs into your life. Actually, we're receiving a person, the very person of Jesus, into our lives. And he brings his hope to us. Will you receive him today? Will you receive his hope today for you? And fourthly, I want to finish with this. God calls us to respond. 
See, Daniel is eventually able to get up and go about. He says he, he can go about the king's business. I got up and I went about the king's business. He was, uh, he was part of the Babylonian. Uh, he had a role in the Babylonian government. We read earlier in Daniel. He gets up and he's faithful to the place God has put him. He was still confused about the vision, but nevertheless, he, he got up and he went and got on with his job in the Babylonian government. Jubilee, in the light of Jesus, we're not left confused about the future. In fact, we're filled with hope. However, there is the same call on you and I to be faithful in the places God has put us. And I want to come back to the question I asked at the start. What do you allow to shape your vision of the future? Who do you allow to shape your vision of the future? See, to know that Jesus is in charge, nothing catches him out. To know we've been brought into his kingdom. To know that, to know we can live and know him more in our lives and be involved in advancing his kingdom. Let that shape your future. Let that shape your actions here today. June 30th, 2013. See, to know we're suddenly involved in this kingdom, this advancing kingdom, that will never fade, never end, means actually the actions we do now, the things we do, what we do with our lives right now, today, have eternal value, have eternal meaning. Do you, do you ever have those times when you think in life, oh, what's the point of being faithful in this situation? What's the point of living for Jesus in this situation? Do you ever? I do. But we can know it has eternal value. See, to know that he's in charge of nations, he's in charge of evil, he's in charge of the end, means we can be faithful in our families, in our work, in our studies, in our search for work. We can honour our friends, we can honour our bosses, we can honour our teachers, our parents, because we know those things now have eternal value. See, we can often talk about influencing Teesside for the kingdom, can't we? Well, actually, do you know, a lot of the time, that influence happens in those everyday situations. It really does. As you live for Jesus in those around you. To know that Jesus is in charge of nations, of evil, he's in charge of our hope for the end, means not that we sit back and go, well, it's all done. I have nothing to do. But actually it means we're enabled by the Spirit living in us to build the church. To be a community of people that love Jesus, that are filled with the Spirit, that declare his name to people around us, make him known more. Do you know, we've been called to a great thing. 
been called to a great mission jubilee alongside many other churches in Teesside. We've been called to a great mission. But do you know, it's not achieved by a human effort. It's not achieved by, come on, let's just pull our socks up and do it a bit harder. Let's work a bit harder. It's not achieved in that way. It's achieved by delighting in our Jesus. It's achieved by seeing him as wonderful. Him as our all. It's achieved by our vision being put on him. And remaining on him. There was such a sense in the worship, wasn't there? Of our vision being lifted to him. And it affects how we live now. It affects our actions. It affects what we do with our finance. It affects how we live in our families. It affects how we are with our neighbours. It affects our faithfulness in our jobs. It affects all these things. It affects how we are at school. When our vision is lifted to him. And we see him as wonderful. And we delight in him. <laughs> and though he's in charge, rule of the nations. And we're his. And we're his. I want us to finish by worshipping. Do you know, I, I kind of thought, should we do something where we, we encourage people to come to the front and, uh, who, who just need their vision lifted? But actually, I think it's a whole church thing. I just kind of think this is not just for one or two of us who kind of feel a little bit stirred this morning. I think it's a church thing. I think Jesus is calling us as a church to lift our gaze afresh to him, to delight in him, to find all we need in him, to not be distracted by the things of life but to find our delight in him let's stand I want to pray for us and then we're going to worship